If you have your Bibles, you can be seated because I'm I uh, after last week couldn't get through what I wanted to get through, uh, or, or at least you know uh, what I had planned to get through. God knows best, and I believe that we took our time where we needed to take our time. But I uh, adapted my uh, things, and I've tried to write it down a little bit more coherently so that maybe I don't get caught up in rabbit trails and things like that. And so uh, I'm trusting that you have a Bible, that you brought it. Even if it's on your phone or your iPad, you have a Bible. And so I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 8. And uh, I want us just to, to we're going we're gonna to go verse by verse. We're not going to read uh, we're not going to read it all in its entirety as I have done in times past, but I want us to go verse by verse. Sometimes we'll do a couple verses if it's, if it's part of the same point, if you will. But I, I am truly confident. I have enjoyed. I hope you all have. I, I mean, you tell me, some of you have told me you have, so uh, I'm assuming that that's right, that you're getting uh, something out of this. That the, It is a hard book. Sister Sharon was telling me today that her sister at her church, her pastor is going through Hebrews, just happens to be, and they were discussing that Hebrews is a deep subject, and it is. And here's the thing, so many times we come to the Bible with preconceived notions or preconceived ideas, uh, right or wrong, and uh, sometimes we we don't look at a, a chapter or a book of the Bible as a uh, as a togetherness, we'll take one verse or one chapter, and when and you'll really see this when we get to Hebrews chapter eleven. It won't be tonight; It'll probably be in a, you know a few services from now. When we get to Hebrews chapter eleven, you're going to realize that Hebrews chapter eleven is not some standalone chapter on faith. Now, it, it I'm, I love it, and you can preach about the faith that people had, but it is absolutely talking about the salvation and the faith that Old Testament people had and how it concerns to you and my faith. And so, you know, we have to be careful. We don't take Hebrews 11 because we understand that and hang it up all by itself. It all fits together. And uh, Hebrews is written uh, very um, linearly. It, it, it flows from one point to the next. And so I want to go. We have, we have taken, I, I should know this, I don't know exactly how many... Uh, uh, days or nights rather we've taken on Hebrews we've gone through seven chapters I think that it's about eight or nine sermons that we've preached or taught off of that we've talked about Hebrews that Jesus Christ is better and the now for you and I we would say well uh, yeah he's better but remember this is this is at the beginning of this new church this is not long after the, the book of Acts and maybe even during some of the book of Acts. These are, are people, and especially since it's written to the Hebrews, it's written to those that, had, had, that were the children of Israel. They grew up in that Jewish uh, mindset and Jewish belief. They had gone to the temple. They had sacrificed. And now they're doing something totally different. It's outside of their comfort zone. And there, were, there was this desire to slip away from the, the baptism in Jesus' name and, and repentance of sins and kind of go back to something that felt a little more normal. 
And uh, so the writer of Hebrews was saying, don't, don't ever go back to something from something that is better. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at, at verse uh, 1 of chapter he, Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, it'll be in the King James behind me. And, and many of us have other versions, and you can look at that. They're all going to say the same thing, just a little different way. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Now this is where we're coming to. If it's taken us eight or nine uh, lessons to get to here, so be it. If you missed a few things in some of those earlier lessons, if, if it was, was not as clear as you wanted it to be, if, if, if there were muddy things in that, that's okay. How about this? If you don't get anything else in the first seven chapters, let's get this because this becomes the main point. This is where everything hinges. We've come to the main point of Hebrews that we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. We've spoken uh, several times previous in, in chapters that this terminology, seated at the right hand, is not a spatial description. We're not talking about literally at the right hand of another person. That is a figure of speech that indicates power and majesty and might. And so we're still talking about one God. When you get to heaven, you and I get to heaven, there's only going to be one throne. And there's only going to be one seated on the throne. And when you get to heaven, I promise you, you will recognize the one seated on the throne is none other but Jesus Christ. Um, while you and I might take for granted that Jesus is our high priest, the, those in the first century, that was a radical concept to them. These Jews, these Hebrews, uh, they could not wrap their mind that Jesus the son of Mary and Joseph I'm talking about in the humanity that Jesus the son of Mary and Joseph could be called the high priest now you and I we don't think about the Melchizedekian uh, priesthood we don't think about that but remember uh, the Jewish believers they knew that you could not be a high priest unless you were of the house of Levi the tribe of Levi Jesus and, and, and Mary and that lineage comes from uh, the house of Judah. And so when Jesus or anybody would begin to preach, Jesus is the high priest, in the back of the minds of those Jewish believers that have simply uh, now been, been converted, they've received the Holy Ghost, in the back of their mind, it really bothered them that Jesus could claim that high priest. But uh, the issue is simply this, and what we're going to talk about all tonight is that the key to salvation is found exclusively in Jesus Christ. There cannot be compromise. There cannot be another way. There's no plan B. That's the answer. Look at verse 2. Again, talking about Jesus. He's a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So let's put these together. Jesus, our high priest, ministers for us in the holy place, that true tent the word tent, we would see it in the Bible as tabernacle. So he ministers in a tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not by man. We're going to see in a few moments in verse 5 that everything that Moses did and set up was simply symbolic. It was a type. It was a shadow. It was a copy, if you will, of things that were 
to come. The tabernacle in its physical construction, whether it was how it was, how it was divided, what was in the tabernacle, the golden lamp or the table of showbread or, or any of that, the altar. All of those constructs of the tabernacle in its physical existence were symbolic of the spiritual realities that were associated with the atonement that you find in the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, everything about the tabernacle pointed in some way to Jesus Christ and the redemption that he would provide. And, and when we get into uh, Hebrews 9 and 10, we're going to see that very clearly. The tabernacle points its way to Jesus. Jesus as the high priest, another word, is a minister. He ministers and functions the same way those priests did. But here's the thing, those priests operated in a temporal covenant. God gave it to them on Mount Sinai and, and it was for a period of time. Those priests, they had a ministry to fulfill. They had to do things exactly right to in order to satisfy the commandments of the covenant there on Mount Sinai. They had to make sure that the sacrifice was unblemished. They had to make sure it was a male. They had to make sure they, they cut it. Go read Leviticus. Go read uh, Deuteronomy and you will find I mean and sometimes it gets almost mind numbing to read it because over and over got to take the liver and do this got to take the kidneys and do that those priests ministered and functioned now Jesus comes and he does the same thing he has a function to fill in this new covenant but this new covenant is an eternal covenant this new covenant is the ultimate and final covenant and we're going to see that the very last verse you'll catch on in chapter 8 you'll see that if not before let's look at verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 8 for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices thus it is necessary for this priest this Jesus Christ that we're talking about it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer again those priests of old they offered sacrifices because they were required to so when Jesus became the high priest, he had to bring something, he had to have something in order to offer it, and so we know that he offered his body on the cross for the sins of the world. Now some of this goes fast. Don't, don't go, hey, we're already on, on the fourth verse and he's only got you know 13 total. We'll slow down for a moment, but let's get there. Let's look at verse 4. Uh, verse 4 and 5, they go together. Now if he, who's he? Jesus. If he was on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that is shown to you on the mountain. And that's, that's where we go back. Everything that Moses did... Every, everything he followed was because it was pointing them to this Messiah, this high priest. That's a key thing. I, I, I want you, when you read the Bible, when you read the Old Testament particularly, you need to understand that almost everything that is written down in the Old Testament has a function to push people towards the Messiah. 
that was what it was there for. That, that they weren't able to do it on their own. They needed desperately a Messiah. The problem was too many of them never longed for the Messiah. Instead, they would get into a hard spot. And instead of turning and saying, God, I need you, send us help or bring the Messiah. Instead, they'd go, well, we'll go to Baal or we'll worship uh, Ashroth and you know, we'll do that. But this verse, verse 4, if Jesus' priesthood was limited to an earthly role, again, he would have been unqualified to do that. If Jesus' priesthood is simply to do the same thing that the other priests are doing, why do we need Jesus? We, they, at that time, they still had a high priest. There was a high priest they could have gone, uh, I mean, go, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, there was a high priest. You know, that was present in those trials. So there was already an earthly high priest. And if Jesus' priesthood was simply earthly, he was unqualified. He's from the tribe of Judah. He needs to be from the tribe of Levi. But remember, that priesthood, that Levitical priesthood, while it served its purpose, while it was absolutely necessary for that time and that place, it was only a shadow of things to come. Even those priests... Even the function of the Levitical priesthood should be pointing towards an eternal and heavenly high priest. There were better things to come when Moses climbed the top of Mount Sinai and God thundered down and God wrote down the law. And then later, because they messed up, God rewrote the law and added to it. Uh, when God gave Moses the form and the function of the tabernacle and the priesthood and the law, there were better things yet to come. It was necessary, but there were better things coming. Now here's where we're going to take some time. Look at verse 6. Let me, let, me, let me whet your appetite by this. Have you ever wondered what exactly, or rather better, have you ever wondered how exactly were people in the Old Testament saved? Have you ever wondered, when I get to heaven, am I going to see David? Am I going to see Abraham? And, 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 and these are some of these questions that these verses begin to, to answer, or at least we're going to extrapolate out of them. I want to see it. So let's, let's look at verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he meta, uh, that the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. This, my friend, is the key to understanding at least the first portion of Hebrews, if not all of Hebrews, that Christ's priesthood, Christ's purpose, Christ's ministry is better because the covenant that Christ mediates is. Better than the old covenant given to Moses. This new covenant has better promises, has infinitely better promises. One of the points that I want to get across tonight is exactly what did the Mosaic covenant do? Why did God give it? Why didn't he just start with Jesus? You know, I, 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 we all think that way. Why, why did we have to go through all of that? Why didn't he just start with Jesus and then create Adam and Eve. That would have solved maybe some problems. No. But what purpose did those tabernacles, what purpose did the priesthood accomplish? 
Again, think about this. How much blood has been shed, innocent animals killed for the sins of Israel and people from, from, from going all the way back to, to uh, Cain and Abel, which makes me assume that Adam and Eve offered sacrifices or else Cain and Abel wouldn't have known how. So it goes all the way from there. Moses offered sacrifices, Abraham offered sacrifices, Job offered sacrifices, Melchizedek offered sacrifices. How much blood was spilled and for what reason? Perhaps you've heard it preached. I've even alluded to it in times that, you know, it was the priesthood, it was the tabernacle, it was the blood of sacrifices, those that day of atonement, all of those that rolled back the sins of Israel for a year until the next blood sacrifice could be made. And while that's a, it's an easy way to say it, it's not quite right. It's like saying that, you know, we use the terminology that God was robed in flesh. I mean, it, make, it makes a great song, even a Christmas song, robed in flesh, you know, the Godhead scene. Veiled in, in, in I, my brain just stopped, but you see that. But that's not entirely the best way to describe the incarnation. He didn't put on a costume. It wasn't just slipping on a, a robe of skin and coming out into you. And I know he became flesh, fully flesh. From his hair on top of his head to the veins around his heart to the nervous system. And so I don't want to just say it simple. I want to really flesh it out. So let's look at what the covenant did. Um, if you want to flip with me, you can. Uh, they're going to try to follow me uh, as well. Let's look at Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. What shall we say? That the law is sin? <laughs> By no means, or God forbid. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Listen, the old covenant in that, that we find, and when I say the old covenant, that's the law of Moses, that's the Mosaic covenant. Uh, the law, that, that old covenant did not offer any means of salvation. What the old covenant did was to define sin that was already present in the heart of man. So I want you to just, now we know that, that man is, is born with a conscience. So Adam and Eve, from what I know, really had no teaching. They walked with God, it was a great communication, but as soon as they sinned, their conscience kicked in, guilt kicked in. They knew they had done wrong. But there was no written law at that point. Uh, if it when, when Cain took a rock and bashed Abel's head in. There was no law written that said, Thou shalt not kill. Now, in Cain's heart, he know he, he did wrong. And so there was the, the, the teaching of, the, of hum, human's conscience that would kick in, but there had been no law. Now, the law comes. And now, it says, Don't do this, or do this. And so, first off, the covenant... Uh, the, the old law, Mosaic law, Mosaic covenant, defines sin. Now, within the sacrifices that Moses and that law of Moses brought, listen carefully, there is no vehicle, there is no provision for redemption of man. I want you to think about that for a moment. 
and, and, and I know I'm right because I've been studying it for this semester at, at Urshan. I've taken this class, and, and I've studied it on my own, and, and I, I've talked to others. I know I'm right. You can read all the Bible verses you want to read. You are never going to find that Moses' law would ever redeem uh, or, or save people. Let's look at me. I know, I mean, look at this rather, not at me. Let's look at the Bible. Uh, we're going to jump ahead for a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll get, you know, we'll go to Hebrews chapter 10 in its entirety, but let's just jump ahead for a moment. Uh, let's look at verse 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, once having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So if those sacrifices were able to redeem, why do you keep doing them? If you were born and, and you live 50 years, there was a sacrifice that you made at least once every year, and then there were others that were made every time you sinned. It could be daily or weekly or monthly. But, you know, we teach and we preach now, when you receive the Holy Ghost, it ought to start allowing you to live beyond sin. That, that you ought, and those things that used to trip you up, and you had to, you know, come to the church and cry and repent about every day. When you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, it ought to lead you past that. It doesn't show that in the Old Testament. In fact, Hebrews tells us it doesn't redeem. Let's look at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That, that's not a New Testament only verse that says now that we're in the New Testament, no one's justified by the law. That literally means no one ever was justified by the law. That all of the law and all of the sacrifices and all the blood could not remove any sins. All those sacrifices could do were to point towards and function as a shadow of things to come when there would finally, once and for all, be a sacrifice that would deal with the sin problem. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Again, this is not a New Testament-only verse. It applies to all. Let's keep going to, to Hebrews 11.39. For all these, though commended through their faith, and this is you know all the faith people that you see in, the in, the, in that chapter, they were commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Hang on that. We'll, we're, I'm going to really explain that in a moment. Let's look. Now, now, okay, you say, well, Pastor, you're in the New Testament, all right? Let's go to the Old Testament. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
That doesn't mean a happy thing. That means lifted up on a cross. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which was not been told to them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. This is a prophecy of what's coming. You go to Isaiah chapter 53 and you have the he's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Uh, uh, men hid their faces. He was despised. They esteemed him not. You've got all of that that goes there. You could, you could read it. Let me quote from you. I've, I've told you that I've been using uh, as, a, as a good portion of my study, Brother Dr. Seagrave's book, Hebrews, Better Things. Let me quote a direct portion of his book that, that helps. He, he says this, and I'm quoting. The only Israelites for whom the sacrificial system was of any value were those who offered those sacrifices with faith towards God in anticipation of the ultimate sacrifice, however vague their understanding of the ultimate sacrifice may have been. That bull that they brought had no more redemptive quality than the O'Fallon water that sits inside of our baptistry has any ability to cleanse you. When, I, when, when we step into the waters of baptism, we, we understand that's not the blood of Christ. It's O'Fallon municipal water, as hard as can be. And, and so when we step in the waters of baptism, we are saying by faith, the blood of Jesus is going to wash me clean. When I go under in the name of Jesus, we are saying by faith, I am of His, I'm called His, I'm connected to Him, I'm baptized into the name. The same is true when they would offer a sacrifice for their sins. When a person would bring that bull or bring that lamb and they would sacrifice it. It was not the blood of that animal. Listen to me very carefully. It was not the blood of that animal that atoned for their sin. It was the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to explain it and you're going to understand it and you're going to be able to go tell everybody. This is not some whacked out weird new doctrine I'm trying to teach you. But that the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can atone. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's hard, you and I, how in the world can the blood of Jesus atone for those that were in the Old Testament when he was not born until the new? How can the blood of Jesus atone for sins before the Messiah is born or before Golgotha's hill? Well, if you want to understand it, you go to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 and then Revelation chapter 4 and verse 17. So let's watch Revelation 13, 8. And all that dwell on the earth shall worship him, Jesus, whose names are not written in the book of, the, of life of the Lamb, watch this, slain from the foundation of the world. So we have this understanding that there is a Lamb slain from the foundation, from when the world was begun. Let, let's try to figure that out. How does that, how does that happen? Well, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 17 says... Uh, and, and that it's written, I've made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead. Now watch this. And calleth those things which be not 
as though they were. So let me explain. God, who knows all things, knew before he ever stuck a hand down into the earth and formed man out of the dust of the earth. God knew that man was going to fall into sin. And so before man was even created, God determined in advance that he would provide the means for their salvation through the incarnation and through the atonement. And since that was already settled in the mind of God, then he could deal with the problem of sin on the basis of the blood of Jesus prior to the cross just as surely as he is able to deal with it now after the cross. Look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. And then I'm going to give you some more illustrations so you can really understand this. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Brother Steve, who has sinned? Everybody. Just, in the, just from New Testament on, right? That's what the word all means, right? That, that only people after Jesus was born have sinned. Is that right? Yeah, no. Did Adam sin? Mm-hmm. Did Cain sin? Did Abel sin? Did Moses sin? Did Noah sin? The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let's keep going. And are justified by his grace as a gift through what? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Did y'all catch that? Let me read it slowly. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Would you let me do this, Sister Sorrels? Can I put a person's name there to represent all? I could say, for Brandon has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and is justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How many of you would agree that's a true statement that I just made? Let me try it again because if y'all don't get that, I can't go any further. Let me read the Bible. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Okay, I've got a third of you that believe that. That's good. Now, is that statement true applied to me? If, is Brandon uh, sinned and have I fallen short of the glory of God and I'm justified by his grace as a gift of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus? Is that a true statement? Okay, got a little bit more. Now, for Adam, first Adam, all the way back in Genesis, for Adam has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and is justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Is that a true statement? And although it's, you, you, you haven't ever thought of that, it is absolutely true because all have sinned. Now watch verse 25. We're talking about the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. We're going to talk about that. It's to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now listen, I want y'all to pay attention because I have all my life really struggled and wondered how does the Old Testament salvation fit with New Testament salvation? The plan, that plan that God had from the beginning 
the atoning blood of Jesus Christ applied not only though or applied not only to those that are after Calvary. All of us know that. We say, man, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Let me tell you something. Jesus died on the cross for all of those who were before Calvary. If I could explain this in a very, very, very simple, simple way. And, and you know that every illustration will have a breaking point. So those of you who are real smart, I know you could take this and, and break the illustration. But let me make it real simple. Has any of you ever had a deal with someone that they were going to buy something from you? They were going to buy a car. They were going to buy a, a, a couch. And you let them have it before they paid. Now, we know there's a lot of times you get burned real bad by that. But I will tell you in my life, I have allowed somebody to have the, the item before they actually paid for it because I knew they were good for it. Can I tell you today that Jesus, his death on the cross, that's how the blood of Jesus atones. Because there was no doubt in the mind of God that the blood of Jesus would atone and purchase the, the, that, you know, and satisfy that, that ransom demand on Calvary, that means all of the sins before Calvary could be taken care of by faith because there was coming an answer. In every time period, from, from Adam and Eve all the way up until the cross, in every time period, God has provided a means of salvation through faith based on what God has done uh, or what God requires. So let me show you. Here, here's the difference. Everybody has to have faith. Everybody has to have faith in God. That is, the, that is the, 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 the primary thing about salvation. I love repentance. I love the baptism in Jesus' name. I love the infilling of the Holy Ghost. But if that is not predicated by someone's faith, it doesn't work. And the same is true. So here it is. Watch this. Faith is the same. The, the difference is what was required of the faith. Noah's expression of faith, Noah believed God. What did he do? He built an ark. He was saved, though, by faith, not by the ark. He was saved by faith in God. The ark was simply the, 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 the vehicle, if you will. Uh, Abraham left Ur. He left his home, his family. Why did he leave him? He left because of faith. And we'll understand this and flesh this out when we get into Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, for Israel, once they got to Mount Sinai, how did they show their faith? They followed the law of Moses. How do you and I today show our faith? We partake in the plan of salvation, Acts 2.38. So the thing is, faith is required. That old covenant could not remit sin. What does the word remit mean? It means to remove. The old covenant could not even regenerate a sinner. In the old covenant, there was nothing that could completely forgive or, or, or remit or generate the soul. But by contrast, this new covenant that you and I have a part of, that we're a part of right now, what does it say? It transforms the heart. It transforms the mind. It transforms the soul. Remember that when we get to, to Hebrews uh, uh, 8, verse 10 and 12 today. But watch what Romans 4 and verse 7 says. Blessed are those who lawlessness 
whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now we would shout at that, at least I do. Man, I'm so glad that when I came down to the altar and I repented of my sins and I was washed in the blood of Jesus in those waters of baptism that the Lord doesn't count my sin. Hey, I've been forgiven. I've been set free. I've been redeemed. What's the old song said? I'm redeemed by love divine. Oh, glory, glory. Christ is mine. Guess what? That's not a New Testament verse. Paul was quoting from Psalms 32. All the way back in the Psalms 32, this is what it says, Psalms 32, 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So here we go. Here's the understanding. Within the Old Testament or any time prior to the cross, God would provisionally forgive sin to those people who lived by faith under the law. There was a forgiveness of sin. But the removal, the eradication, or the forgetting of sins could not be complete until a new covenant came, until the blood of the Lamb for sinners slain was spilt on a cross. Remember when I told you about, uh, have you ever had someone want to buy something from you and you let them have it before they pay? Let me give you another idea. So hold on, let me let me grab my checkbook. Find my checks. And I'm gonna come right here. Pay pay to the order of Ward Sponsler. The date is twelve seven sixteen for one million dollars. Some of y'all are already mad. All right. Okay. Suppose sponsor, it's a real check. I bank at Great Southern. That's a real check written to you for $1 million. <laughs> that check, that's not money. That's a symbolic gesture. Of what I want to do. When a person would come. When a person would come and they, in the Old Testament. They would bring their sin. And they, they knew they had sinned. And they would come and they would sacrifice that, 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 that sacrificial lamb if you will for their sin. If you will. There was a check written to cover their debt. I hope I can get this across like I felt all day. It makes me want to weep when I realize what God has done. If any of you have ever been in debt to something or someone, brother, brother sponsor, let's, let, let's reverse that for a moment. Let's say that you had loaned me a million dollars. And I have lived under that debt, knowing that, that I've got to repay it. I've got to figure out. And so I say, brother, brother sponsor, I'm going to repay you. That's my repayment. That is a symbolic gesture. Because if you took that to the bank right now, I'd owe the bank $37 for a bounce check. Because I can't cover that. But if I said, Brother Sponsor, would you wait until April the 15th? Because I'm getting my tax return and it's, it's a big one. 
I want to pay my debt. I'm giving you a symbolic thing. It represents what the payment is of my debt. If you'll wait to April 15th or April 16th it is, we'll let it cash itself. If you'll wait to April 16th, you can put that in the bank and it will cover it. Can I tell you today that they in the Old Testament, they owed a debt of sin just like you and I owed a debt of sin. But when they came and they brought their, their, their little sacrifice to the, to, to the Lord and to the temple and they sacrificed it, it was as if there was a check written that said we've covered their debt but you can't cash the check to an old rugged hill on the outside of Jerusalem where once and for all the lamb, the high priest is going to put himself on a cross and then my friend, once that blood begins to spill and once he heaves his chest and says it is finished then you better run to the bank David you better run to the bank Abraham because the sin that was forgiven all the way back in the Old Testament now finally has been redeemed I'm going to take that check back so you don't actually go cash it. Does that make sense? That's why you can say that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. When Adam sinned, there had to be some sort of sacrifice made. And there was, so what happened is, when they would offer their sacrifices, they could get out from, from under, if you will. See, Brother Sponsor, if, 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 I, if, if I owed you money, you'd go get the, 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 the creditors to come after me, you'd get the repo men to come after me, and I would be hanging over my head, would be hanging this understanding, I owe a debt, that guilt, if you will. But if I could give you that check and say, if, if you'll wait till April the 16th and if you can do it, then I could walk away saying, I've done what I can do. Because I know that money's going in there. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that money's going in there. And so when the Old Testament people would repent of their sins and, and they, would, they would bring that offering and they would uh, offer that sacrifice, then they could be forgiven. They no longer had to hang their head. They could say, I've been forgiven. I've satisfied what I can do. But the old law, if they would have really grasped it, and they didn't, it would have been pointing to an old rugged hill. And that's when all of that blood that was shed symbolically was finally paid. If you would, that's why we use the word reconcile. See, it's like anything you have with a check. If, if I give you a check, and I understand checks bounce, but let's pretend checks never bounce. So, so that we can, if I give you a check, Brother Perryman, I have given you a payment, right? But to be honest, that payment don't count until it clears the bank and you can put it in your QuickBooks or whatever, your Microsoft Excel, and you can reconcile your deposit. When Jesus died on the cross, there was an entire generation of an Old Testament that became reconciled just as it was the day you knelt at an altar, repented of your sins, and was filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. I think somebody ought to lift your hands for a moment and begin to thank him for the blood that he shed on Calvary. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Remember, remember, 
Jesus did not exist in the Old Testament in the form that we understand. God did. But there was no, there was no son, uh, no second person in, the, in, in some Godhead walking around in the Old Testament. So it's not that he was there. It was that that, 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 that blood was going to finally reconcile the statement. Hallelujah. Let's, let's look. Let, let's keep going. Here in verse 6 that we just read. Well, it's been a while. But it used the word mediator. There's two more times in the book of Hebrews that we're going to find that word mediator. You're going to find it in chapter 9. You're going to find it in chapter 12. But perhaps the verse that you might most be remembering is 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. For it says, there is one God. That's good to know. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There's that word again, all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. God, uh, uh, rather, let, let, me, let me say this. Jesus is the mediator between God and man by the reason of his incarnation. If you go to Galatians chapter 3, it teaches us that Moses was the mediator between Israel and God. That's why we commonly say it's Moses' law or the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law. And the law was conditional. God's blessings depended on the people's obedience. And so you find times, I mean, I preached it just a, a few weeks ago, that, that Moses, there were times that he begged God not to kill him. Because he knew they had messed up. And so Moses was a man. Moses failed. Moses didn't even get into the promised land because he sinned. But he was the mediator between God and man at that point. Later on, it's those high priests that mediate between God and man. But let's watch verse, uh, chapter Timothy, 1 Timothy, chapter 3 and verse 16. Y'all ought to be able to quote it. And without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. John chapter 1 verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Those two verses teach us something that is absolutely incredible. That there is no separation between the divinity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is Jesus doesn't slip in and out of roles whenever he needs to. He is not divine at one point and human at another point. He is both at the same time. He is God and he is man simultaneously. Do I understand that completely? No. Which is why he said great is the mystery. But just because I don't understand it completely doesn't mean I, know, I don't know it's true. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt it's true. Why? Because the Bible told me. Moses mediated that old covenant and uh, he, he, he messed up. His nature, his sin caused him not to be able to go into the promised land. But Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And this is a much better mediator. Because in his humanity, he represents you and I. But in his divinity, he represents God. Moses, when, if, when he was mediating that covenant, he had to make sure, Aaron, do this exactly like I told you, otherwise we're in a heap of trouble. Aaron didn't always do things right himself. He made the golden calf, for crying out loud. 
And so Moses is trying to get humans to do the right thing so that the covenant would stay together. The reason we need a new covenant is because Israel and humanity failed. And if you don't keep one part of the covenant, it null and voids the other. But Jesus says, I'm the mediator. I'm not asking you to do anything. Jesus said, I'm going to satisfy the requirements of that covenant. When it says that there needs to be blood shed, I'm not going to ask for your blood. I'm not going to ask for your lamb. I'm going to walk up to a cross. I'm going to lay myself down, and I will satisfy the requirements of that covenant. What that means is you're not waiting for humanity to do something right so that you and I can obtain the promise of the covenant. Jesus already settled it. In fact, that's what Jesus answered. And, and, and it took me a little bit to read these questions over and over in the Bible to really understand it. But in John chapter 6 and verse 28, they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? See, they were in that Old Testament mindset. What do I need to sacrifice? What do I need to do? How do I need to wash myself? What do I need to do? And this is what God said. This is the works of God that you believe on him who he has sent I know those disciples staggered back for a moment and said seriously believe I, I don't have to I don't have to uh, make sure I don't wear linen and, and, and cotton together and I, I, I gotta make sure that I don't eat anything unclean and I gotta wash my hands like this and I gotta kill an animal like this and move the kidneys here and build the altar just right you mean all of that I don't have to do no, because Jesus did it all. You don't have to do anything to be saved, but believe. What are you going to do with your faith? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You shall receive the Holy Ghost after you believe. Simply believe. Let's go to verse 7 of chapter 8 of Hebrews. This is where we're kind of getting for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been no occasion to look for a second. That question is answered this way. The first covenant was flawless, or faultless, or, or was not faultless. It was flawed. There were problems. And so it became necessary for a better covenant to come. The old covenant, now listen, I'm not throwing that away necessarily. The old covenant was holy. And it was just and it was good because God gave it. You can read that in Romans chapter 7 verse 12. The old covenant, Moses' law, it served its purpose to, divine, to define sin for Israel. You read that in Romans 7, 7. And the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, pointed Israel to the Messiah. That's what Galatians teaches us. But it was not faultless. In fact, Romans 8, 3 says it this way. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. The weakness of the law, the fault of the law, it was weak through the flesh. That the law, it demanded perfection. It demanded that you do exactly this or else everything falls apart. But our human nature and our fragility could not measure up. So there became need for a new covenant that was not flawed. I'm almost done. 
I want you to read with me Hebrews 8, 8 through 12. For he finds fault with them when he says, and then you find a quote. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers one day on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the, Lord, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put the law into their hearts, into their minds, and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. And I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This is a Old Testament quotation. They are quoting almost word for word Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31 through 34. In the Old Testament, God was already telling this covenant I gave you on Mount Sinai, it's done. God finds fault with humanity by, de- by demanding that through the law, perfection and humanity, or rather it demanded through the law, perfection. But he met, humanity could not measure up to that. The fault was this. God intended for the old covenant to demonstrate the sinfulness of humanity and the inability of humanity to redeem himself. The law was, the old law was designed to bring man to a position where they would cry out for the Messiah. To look ahead to the redemption that was promised over and over and over in the Old Testament. But Israel failed miserably. They wouldn't call out to God for redemption. They fell into idolatry and other sins. And so finally God said, fine. Because you didn't uphold your your end, I'm going to not hold my end. In fact, can I tell you what the, the, the Mosaic Law promised? This is what the Mosaic Law promised. Honor your father and your mother so that you're... Anybody know what the last part of that is? So your days will be long on the earth. That was a promise. The promise was you're going to live a a longer time than most. And then the promise was if you do this, I'll bless your cattle, I'll bless your land, I'll bless your crops, I'll bless your family. So the old law, the Mosaic law, was one that would allow you to live a, a good life and a fruitful life. No redemption. And when they failed, God said, I'm not going to live up to my deal. You're not going to live long. You're going to live under captivity. Everybody's going to come and steal your crops. And still they didn't call for the Messiah to come. And even when he did come, many didn't recognize that he was the one prophesied over and over in the scriptures. I want to invite you to stand with me. Next year, January the 8th, that's the, the second Sunday of, of January. The first Sunday will be New Year's Day, and we'll have just one service on New Year's Day at 10. But on January the 8th, we're going to have our, our communion service, and I'm so excited. We're going to have Brother James Littles preach and minister there, and he's a phenomenal minister. And, and, and one of the things that I have heard him do is lead a church in communion and I, I want, I've asked him to come but I want us to look look, go back and look at that first one the, the last supper which is where we get our our communion act from notice the words of Jesus 
As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it, gave it to his disciples and said, Eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to him, to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is the blood of the New Testament. Other versions in the Bible say New Covenant that is shed for many, the remission of sins. And in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 8, it says, In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what has become obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And the writer of Hebrews was telling, there is no old covenant anymore. You can do all the sacrifices, you can eat all the right stuff, and you can wear all the right things and wash your hands the right way and sacrifice... It ain't going to do any good because that covenant's gone. That contract's been ripped up and torn apart. There's a new one now. And he said, this is what it is, the blood that was shed for you. Can I tell you today, while you may never be tempted to go back to, you know, sacrificial systems, you may never be tempted to go back to, to you know, eating the, the kosher foods and things like that, there's many times that people are tempted to leave the blood of Jesus and the cross and go back to an old life. But can I tell you today, there's nothing better than what He's already given us. And He said, freely I give and freely you can have. That's what Jesus brings. And I hope somewhere in that you, you've got a better understanding. And I just feel like we ought to end it. Maybe just to come around this altar for a moment as they begin to sing this old song. I just feel like maybe some of us want to just take a moment to tell him thank you. Lord, even just talking about this well.